welcome back and thanks for tuning in to Oil & Gas Onshore, where I am on a relentless pursuit to bring value, unity, and information to the energy industry one conversation at a time. So sit back, relax, and remember that even this very device you're listening on requires some form of hydrocarbon. This episode is brought to you by Technip FMC, a company who truly represents the future of energy. Hey everyone, look, not only do you get awesome weekly content by listening, now you've got a chance to win some serious swag brought to you by Technip FMC. Each week, one lucky listener will win a bundle of gear, which includes everything I'm about to list. Seriously, everything. An audio duffel bag, a Yeti tumbler, an executive power bank power charger, a Columbia neck gator, and a set of Ace Pods 2.0, which are the true wireless Bluetooth earbuds. All you got to do is click the link in the show notes and enter your information to win. Simple. Now go get your swag on. All right. Well, welcome to this week's episode. I'm here with Masood Nakshbandi, CCO at Abyss Solutions. Masood, welcome to the show. By the time this airs, hopefully the Astros will be still celebrating after winning the World Series. I don't know if you're an Astros fan. Have you been watching the World Series? Are you excited? When? What's your take? Or do you even care? Yeah, uh, no, thanks a lot. And good morning, afternoon, everyone. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I'm a recent implant here from Australia. So all this American sport is new to me. Okay. For a very short amount of time, I did live next to the Astro Stadium, Minute Maid. Oh, yeah. So, so I do know about it. I have been keeping track of, you know, how they're progressing. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, now as adopted Houstonian, I would go for the Astros and hope they're they're, you know, winning it. Yes. Well, that's a good answer. So you, you don't live downtown anymore or do you just move downtown? No, I'm, I moved out of downtown to in Montrose. I moved out to Montrose, but still very close to downtown. But the first time I came, it was actually an Airbnb. It was literally across the road from the stadium. No way. That's so cool. So how long have you been in Houston for? A bit over two years now. Ah, so you must have come right before COVID and then you got stuck in your Airbnb. <laughs> No, so what happened was we first came alongside my other co-founders in late 2018. Back then, we had no kind of product or we had no kind of business in the oil and gas sector. We were just checking out the market here. And Houston's the place to be, of course, for oil and gas. Yes. You know, luckily for us, we found a lot of traction and a lot of interest. And that was, you know, from the operators in our technology. And, you know, immediately we had some pilots going on with some of the super majors here in the Gulf of Mexico. And based on that, then we just overnight decided, hey, Houston's the place to be. So we packed up, we came here, and this was in 2019 when I I fully moved in here, January 2019. So I was here all of 2019. And then 2020, I actually got locked out of the country (laughs) because Mm. the whole coronavirus situation was going on. I was actually in uh, Lagos, Nigeria. And during that week, Donald Trump had put a ban on travelers and all that because of COVID. So I said, well, I'm not risking staying in Lagos for that long. So I'm just going to go back to Australia, stay there for a couple of weeks. Situation will normalize. I'll be back in Houston. Yeah. Well, I ended up spending six months there, <laughs> back in Australia during 2020. Oh, wow. Working, yeah, kind of working remotely. But then I came back and yeah, I haven't, haven't left Houston since then. So, hmm. so how, what was it like during that time in Australia? Because what you see on the news, and I don't know if it's if it's accurate, but it seems like Australia is a pretty volatile place to be right now. Was it like that back when you were in Australia? No, so when I was back there in 2020, that's still last year, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, like it's all a blur, I know. It's all a blur. Initially, there was only like a two-week or 
three-week lockdown. And then afterwards, life was back to normal because the cases, they were very low and they had very strict border border control. So they didn't let anyone, they didn't let anyone go. So that's why, you know, I haven't been able to make a trip back. Of course, you know, the majority of our team is still back in Australia and I have my family in Australia. So I haven't been able to visit them in over a year because of this harsh conditions that they had imposed on travel. Initially, of course, they had kept the numbers down, but now, you know, numbers are back up again. So yeah, it's, it's back up, but I'm out of here. So <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't blame you. Since being in Houston, what's your, I mean, what's your favorite memory so far? Have you, have you done anything or seen anything or anything that really like surprised you or excited you? Or, I mean, do you have anything that you can touch on? Yeah, I guess there's quite a few things work-related. Okay. And as an entrepreneur, I really like things to move fast. Yes. And, you know, I'm especially mentioning the oil and gas sector here. They they moved very fast compared to what we were used to. Because traditionally, we were dealing with the with the water sector, with the utilities, government agencies, and they moved very slow. I know a lot of people will, who are listening, they will, they will say like, ah, oh, like especially the entrepreneur side, they'll be like, no, they don't move fast. Oil and gas is a very slow-moving industry. Yeah. But I can tell you, like compared to the other industries they're working in, that they, they move quicker. <laughs> really? So, okay. That's a pleasant so, surprise to hear that. Yeah. Of course, we want them to move even quicker. <laughs> but So that was a pleasant surprise coming here. And like I mentioned, in our first couple of weeks, we were like, you know, getting projects. So it was very, uh, and we had no experience in oil and gas before that. So that, that was very refreshing. And, and then, yeah, Houston itself, a city, was very different to Sydney, Australia. So okay. I went to get used to, you know, driving around everywhere. And I went to my first rodeo. I think that was probably very, okay, probably the most memorable thing I've done in Houston. That was quintessentially Houston or Texas. <laughs> yeah. Did you buy a cowboy hat and cowboy boots? I have bought a cowboy hat, not boots yet. Okay. Uh, I'm taking it slow. Right. Well, I've been here for 10 years. Well, it'll be 11 years. No, 11 years. And I have yet to buy cowboy boots or a cowboy hat. So I'm moving slow. So don't feel ashamed. And my co-founder, Nasir Nasser, he's jumped right into it. He's, he's already <laughs> has cowboy boots. He's got his cowboy hat. He's got his truck. Oh, my God. <laughs> nice. And he probably shoots shotguns just for fun. Well, I was just I was saying, I think that's the last thing that's remaining is, is for him to get a gun and then yeah. and that's it. Then he'll he'll fit right in. That's good. So I'm curious, and I wanted to give a big shout out to Sean Six, who actually made the connection a while back. How do you know Sean? Yeah, interesting story, because we were before, like when we first came to Houston, we were based out of Station Houston, Mm -hmm. which they don't exist anymore, but they were kind of a place like an accelerator incubator for energy startups. That's right. Startups in general, but more focused on energy. So Sean works for this company called Red Eye, of course, which is also happens to be an Australian company. So I knew some of the folks at Red Eye because of the Australian connection. And one of them reached out to me and said, hey, we're looking to hire some guy here in Houston. You know, we're looking for an office space. Can you like show him around? Maybe he'll like it. So I said, yeah, sure. I'll help him out. So one day Sean walked in and said, hey, I'm Sean from Red Eye and, you know, want to see the space. Okay. So, and then, yeah, we, we became friends from then on. And, you know, of course, we worked in the same office there. And then recently, since the station Houston got shut down, we both moved to the Canon. Yeah. So we bought here again in the same office. And so it's, it's the connection was very, I still tell Sean that he, uh, he still owe me a commission. <laughs> <laughs> 
or yeah. maybe station owes me commission for bringing them here. But right. Sean, and to be honest, Sean recommended me the Canon. So I think it's equal now. Uh, I think it's a fair trade, but I'd still hold his feet to the fire. Yeah. So, and of course now he's done a good job in connecting us as well. So. Yes. No, he's a, he's a great connector and he's got Sean a great, a what's that? I said he's a good man. He, he is. I have a lot of respect for Sean. He's connected to me to a lot of great people in the industry. So again, a huge shout out to Sean Six. He works at Red Eye. And I had him on the podcast quite a while ago. So if anyone's interested to hear more about Sean, you can search one of the earlier episodes. But nonetheless, so before we get going, Masood, I do want to highlight some fascinating technology provided by our sponsor, Technip FMC. Their new and integrated iComplete ecosystem is digitally enabled and delivers efficiency benefits by dramatically reducing components and connections while simultaneously providing real-time data to operators about the WellPad operations. Technip FMC is continuing to push the limits in order to achieve full frack automation. To discover more about the benefits of iComplete, click the link in the show notes or check them out on LinkedIn for more details. We're also doing our monthly happy hours here in Houston. Check out OGGN.com for more details and make sure to look at all the other OGGN podcasts. We have a ton of new ones that we've recently published, everything from new technology, ESG, leadership, road to C-suite, just a number of different ones that are continuing to be published, which again, we're casting a wide net covering all topics related to energy. So visit OGGN.com for more details. Masood, so I took a look at your LinkedIn, trying to get a good understanding of your journey and your experience throughout your career. You're here in Houston, obviously, but it seems like you've been all over the place, but I couldn't really figure out where are you from originally? Yeah, I guess that's not my LinkedIn. Originally, I'm from Afghanistan. So I was Ah. born there. I spent the initial first few years of my life there. Then after that, I immigrated to Pakistan and then from Pakistan on the way to Australia. So I've been living in Australia, naturalized Australian, since I was 15, but originally I'm Afghan. Ah, okay. So looking at it, it looks like you spent years as a research scientist involved with the University of Sydney. What did you do a lot of your research in? Yeah. So that's my kind of my background is I'm a scientist. And I did most of my studies, both in the undergraduate and then graduate studies in, in chemistry and physics, especially then and towards my research part of my career was towards assembling novel kind of optical sensors that can detect various kind of molecules and indicators. Ah. And basically, the kind of research I was leading, I was very multidisciplinary research because it involved chemists, involved theoretical physicists, it involved optics professors, and included actually industry people as well, which turned out to be one of them, which was a Brazilian sponsor of the project was Petrobras. Back then, I had very little knowledge of oil and gas, but it was a good connection. Yeah. And it was basically, it's basically around creating new kind of sensors using optical fiber and light and using light to detect various kind of gases and molecules such as carbon dioxide, so on and so forth. The project I was working on with Petrobras was to create this optical sensing system that could detect carbon dioxide and boreholes four kilometers underground wow. and then to do it all remotely. Hmm. That's, I mean, that's quite fascinating. What was your favorite experience, you know, going through all that? And is it something that was commercialized or was there a sort of technology or, you know, commercial deployment from anything that you were helped worked on? Yeah, I guess that's a very good question because that's why I ended up starting Abyss Solutions with my co-founders is that I was getting a bit frustrated with the academic world there because I was working on a lot of cool and novel and interesting projects and interesting research ideas which had, you know, in my mind, very good, you know, commercial applications which never 
got commercial art, which never took that next step. And I think maybe it's partly the way academic system is set up, maybe especially in Australia. I'm not sure about the US, maybe it's different here, but it was all, uh, you know, focused towards publishing your results and, you know, getting a high H index rather than actually taking the technology to the next step and actually putting it in the user's hand. Because ultimately, I believe, you know, the research we were doing is funded by the taxpayers. It's funded, uh, some of it by industry. And ultimately, it has to go back to them in one way or the other. You know, more, not all research is there to be commercialized, to be made a profit of. But the thing that I was working on, it was very industrially heavy focused, right? Yeah. So I had gotten a bit frustrated with them. And I was like, well, you know, if the university is not going to help me, then I got to do it myself. So, yeah. And then that's where, you know, I had all the university, I also met my two co-founders as well. And they were kind of in the same situation too. Like Nasser was doing a PhD and postdoc in uh, marine robotics and AI. And hmm. he was a civil and structural engineer doing a PhD there. So we're all were like, guys, there's need for it in the industry university is not going to help us. We'll, let's go do it together. And then we started the journey knowing nothing about the business world. Wow. We were all academics. We we're trying to solve problems. We always tried to over-engineer everything. And, uh, <laughs> but you know, one thing led to the other and we had lots of great support along the way. And now we are where we are, as they say. Wow. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but I think there's one kind of sentence that still stays with me when it comes to commercialization is that one of my professors told me, and she was actually the one who was trying to help us think about commercializations and startups and businesses. And she said, look, to come up with an idea or to discover a new scientific, to make a new scientific discovery or invent a new process, you've only done, you know, 20% of the work. The other 80% is actually in the commercialization of it and making it usable. Because ultimately, if you don't use it, then there's no, and, you know, it's a nice thing that you did. Right. Yeah. No, it's, they always say, or I say, they always say, but a quote that I heard was ideas aren't anything until you execute on them. And I think that somewhat applies is, you know, you could read a bunch of, you know, publications and research paper. And unless it gets to back to the market, and like you said, it goes back to the hard paying, hard tax paying consumers or people that can use those technologies or whatever it is that you're commercializing it, then it's, it's kind of, you know, Arguably, it's kind of useless, although I'm sure some would say it's not useless, but it's cool to hear that you recognize that and then you took it upon yourselves to say, hey, we're going to you know, start a business and begin the entrepreneurial journey. And so I'd like to hear about that as you know, looking back through the years, what's been the hardest or the biggest challenge that you think you overcame? And I would imagine it probably came early in your journey as an entrepreneur, but does anything come to mind that happened or that you overcame that was a pivotal moment in your in your journey as an entrepreneur yeah i mean every day was, i would say it was a pivotal moment every day was a big step up every day was a learning curve every day that was like it had challenges and of course it had its enjoyment and fun as you solve each problem at the time but i've always looked at you know a startup as an entrepreneur's journey as you solving problems and that's i guess where i kind of the scientific and the an academic mind comes into it is because you look at things from an analytical perspective and you know whether it's you know how to meet the client whether it's you know how to put a value proposition together i mean the technology part's the easy part for us right because uh, okay. we were technologists we, we can come up with that it's now how you package it how you you know market it how you you know make it so it's not just a technology but a product mm-hmm. which has a full you know it, it closes the loop in, in kind of the way that 
the client ultimately uses it and interacts with it and, and what their experience of it with your technology. I think to come to that, to go through that journey of starting with just a technology and ending up with, you know, a full value-driven commercial product, I think that that was, I would say that's kind of the main focal point of the journey of Abyss and on myself. Because that is the commercialization of it. That is that journey that I was talking to you about, taking it from research there. Right. So, so I would say that that was kind of the main, the main kind of challenge there, from my perspective at least, is to see that. And, you know, then there's also, you know, the challenges that come with a very high growth company as well. Like, you know, we started off in Sydney, Australia, and now we're kind of present in every continent. And, and wow. we do projects in every continent. And we have people everywhere with different cultures and different time zones and all that. So just kind of the logistics of that is also something that needs getting used to as well. Interesting. So in today's environment, many companies would argue that global supply chain is their biggest challenge. What's your biggest challenge in today's market? That's a very good question. I think in today's market, because we're so heavily technology-driven, it would be the adoption and understanding of the tech. I mean, we're not just a traditional technology. We're like on the cutting edge of the technology. Like the, the thing that we talk about probably did not even exist two, three years ago, right? Okay. And kind of then communicate that to the, the client, to the market, and say, look, it's actually a product for it. They'll be like, is that even possible? Like, you know, from a technical perspective. So first, I think that kind of educating the market and making them aware of, you know, this exists now and you can use it. I think for us, that's the biggest challenge because once the market has heard that and, and they, they accept it, then the rest of it's quite easy because the, the product in itself, is, you know, speaks for itself, our product. Yeah. But, but just to kind of come out, get over the initial barrier of like this technology actually does exist. Uh, like AI does exist. It's, actually, it's not, you know, it's not just a, a research problem. It's actually a commercial product now. I think that's something. Interesting. Yet not us, but anyone that's in our position where they have a cutting edge technology would face. Yes. So how are you overcoming that? I mean, do you have a large marketing campaign? Do you have sales folks that really understand the value proposition that are getting in the doors? I mean, how are you trying to tackle that? Yeah, and that's kind of, you know, what our main focus is as a company at the moment is, is how do we do that, right? And there's different ways that we have taken approaches. Like one is, of course, more engagement and more awareness. So going to attending conferences, presenting technical papers, they have helped a lot. But I would say the main thing would be is that kind of getting the clients that have already used it to kind yeah. of be, you know, evangelists for the technology and, and go out to the market and to their peers and to their colleagues and say, look, guys, it's not all magic. <laughs> it actually does work. We have used it and this is how it works. So it's kind of creating that internal dialogue within the market to basically, you know, for the operators to sell it to each other. Yes. Because they would do a much better job than us anyway. We, we just make tools for them to use. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, in sales, it's so important to leverage existing clients and their successes and then use them as references because yeah, if someone can, you know, talk to a friend in a similar industry or, you know, speak highly of, you know, here's what it did, here's where it added value and here's how much money we saved or, you know, you know, the profits that it helped us achieve. It's a no brainer. And so, yeah, leveraging those experiences and, and really highlighting and showcasing the wins is like so, so powerful. So it sounds like you, you guys are certainly on, you know, tackling that in that sort of fashion, which is great. 
Tell us a little bit more about Abyss and what it is that you guys actually offer to the market. Yeah, sure. So Abyss is a technology company in essence, and our vision is to create the intelligence for the automation systems of the future. Now, what that means is that Abyss and us, like majority of the people, realize that going forward, there's going to be more and more autonomy in our work and our lives and everywhere. And, you know, that mean, you know, humanoid robotics, but it means all kinds of different automation and all kinds of different robotics that will enhance our lives, right? And there needs to be that kind of drive to create the intelligence behind that drives all these things, like kind of the Intel that's inside every computer and Intel chip, right? So that's kind of our vision. That's our grand vision. Now that, to distill that in kind of in a business sense that what we're doing now and how that relates to it is we are creating softwares and robotic packages. So one thing I should actually mention before I go on is that what makes a bit very different compared to other kind of either robotics or AI companies out there is that we are actually combining the two together, right? So you get like traditional AI companies that only offer AI solutions, analytics, and so forth, machine learning. And then you have like traditional robotics companies that provide the hardware for it. But what we do is we combine all these together to provide a robotic solution that mm. is that also intelligent, right? Wow. Okay. So that's our vision. So where we stand right now is we have a few different products, but I'm going to focus on two different products and the main one, which is called Abyss Fabric. Now, Abyss Fabric is a, it's a AI-driven software which takes data in terms of visual and laser scans from offshore facilities or onshore facilities anywhere and uses its intelligence to identify corrosion, external corrosion, and then kind of model it back onto the actual assets themselves. So it gives our client the ability to precisely see how much corrosion is happening on which part of their asset. And we're talking about large offshore platforms or refineries or anything like that. And then based on that, then they can create a prioritization of the work they need to do. So if they are spending, you know, multiple millions on doing a painting regime for fabric maintenance or doing NDT or doing a repair and replace program, this will allow them to have a holistic understanding of the entire facility before they take any action. So they know that every dollar they're spending is the dollar is they're spending it where they should be spending it and not where they shouldn't be spending it. So that kind of you can almost kind of call it like a big data for, you know, offshore platforms when it comes to corrosion. Whereas previously, it would have taken, you know, years and years and lots of manpower. And you probably wouldn't even get to like, you know, even a 70, 80% coverage of your entire facility. Well, now we can do all that in a matter of weeks. Wow. That's fascinating. And so, I mean, you're talking probably thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of savings and efficiencies gained from this. Oh, we, we were talking about millions and double-digit millions because where we make the savings, not only on you know increasing efficiency of how they do inspections, but also by finding these anomalies before they become severe. I'm going to use some very basic terms here. Yeah. Then you, know, you are preventing a lot of remediation costs and shutdowns that would have been associated if that had gone ahead. Right. So because currently in the industry, you know, there's only a certain percentage of a platform or a facility that can be inspected per year. Right. And therefore, it means that a lot of the stuff is missed. A lot of the pipes, a big chunk of the platform is at every cycle. So by enabling our clients with the technology and with the, with the resources that we have to have a holistic picture of the entire facility at a given point, 
they won't miss anything. They won't miss any of the critical items. They won't. So it reduces LOPCs. It will reduce the maintenance costs that they incur. It will prioritize their painting. So they're not spending as much money on doing paints where they don't need to do it. So it kind of, to think about it, like if you go to a doctor and, you know, you do a, a checkup and then you know what to fix. Right. You know exactly where to go to the critical items first. Hmm. And, you know, obviously there's efficiency gains and cost savings there, but even from a safety and, and personnel HS&E perspective, I'd imagine there's value add there. Because if you're able to pinpoint exactly where work needs to be done, then you don't have to allocate as many, you know, human resources to solve problems that may not even exist. Oh, yeah, and definitely. And that's one of the other drivers that the clients use us, right? Is because we reduce POB, especially when it comes to offshore platforms. You have costs, but also, you know, HGC risk associated with sending people offshore. So this kind of allows them to do their work from the beach instead of like being offshore. In terms of like visual inspection, you know, we can completely eliminate any need for that to be done offshore because we have complete visibility of the entire asset. And not only that, but now that with everybody like making commitments to reduce their emissions, so on and so forth, it's just a perfect tool for that too. Because if you're reducing your trips back and forth offshore, you know, you're burning less off, you're making less emissions. Yes. So what do you like most about your job, Masood? I think I like most about it is to sit with the client and solve problems with them and to understand because I don't come from the industry. So for me, it's always when I sit with a client, it's a learning experience and then to kind of learn it and then provide a solution on the spot or then or sometimes think about it a lot <laughs> to provide for it. I think that still interests the scientific side of me as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, one, if you do that, you know, you feel good about yourself because you've helped, helped someone. Right. And a lot of our clients are repeat clients that always come back. So for me, I still get a lot of joy from that. I still get a lot of joy just from, you know, enabling people in our company, our employees to grow as well, because they have very good opportunities and to rapidly accelerate their careers. And that we have some very good case studies of that too. So it's always good to see people growing within your company. It's always good to see, you know, you're coming up with novel solutions. You come, you, you're, and of course, the main thing is that we get to see our technology, new technology that we're bringing in every day almost, commercialized and being put in use. Right. No, that's amazing. And it's, it sounds like you've probably cultivated a great culture within your organization just by way of, you know, as leaders and yourself, obviously, in the position that you're in is leading with intent and creating, you know, people within your company to thrive and do the best they can support them. And it sounds like you like to see people grow and develop themselves as professionals, which, you know, if you're in a company that has some cutting edge technology, there's just so much room for opportunity. And so I would imagine people working within your company or it must be an exciting environment to say the least. Oh, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, I, I get excited every day because there's always something new every day. <laughs> right. That there's always, you know, whether it's a project or a, or a problem or a problem is a sense of you need to find a solution for the client. What, whatever it is, it's always new. It's always engaging. It's always, you know, your mind's always working, which, which is, you know, we are a company full of engineers. They like that. So <laughs> that's exactly. And, and it's not just kind of limited to one sector as well. Like I mentioned, like oil, gas is our major sector, but we always do projects that, you know, keep us on the edge in terms of our development as well. Currently, we have a grant from the Australian government in collaboration with NASA to develop similar kind of technologies for, for space applications as well. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So, so that's one thing we've gone on. 
or we create autonomous surface vessel that can go inside the tunnels and completely autonomously scan it and inspect it hmm. on the platypus system. We have subsea camera systems that are state of the art and best in class. No way. We have now a project in agriculture as well. The similar kind of technology that we use to detect corrosion on offshore platforms, we use it to detect weeds in, in rice fields and tell the clients to, you know, to rogue the fields and get the weeds out before they become a problem or before harvest. So wow. that, that always keeps us, uh, you know, excited. It always, uh, you know, it helps us develop our technology more and more. And at the same time, you know, it, we are growing as a company and growing into different fields. Interesting. And that's what that was going to be one of my questions is if you see yourself entering any other markets, which it sounds like you're, you know, you've, you've got your plans set to do so, which is extremely fascinating. One of the last questions I like to close out with is more on a personal level, but do you have any daily habits or routines that help contribute to your success that help you recharge and really keep you zoned in to continue to have the energy and just determination to work every single day. And you know, as a CCO, I would imagine it your phone doesn't turn off and neither does your mind. So is there anything you do on a daily basis that kind of helps keep you charged, if you will? Yeah, I wish I could uh, exercise every day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Which is not, but I try to. I think physical exercise is very important. I think I try to do that as much as I can. And the other thing, like you mentioned, you know, is your phone's probably not off every day. I actually make a conscious effort to be offline for a few hours a day. And, and that kind of helps me, you know, re-energize and, you know, spend time with the family, do whatever I got to do. And then back into it, I'm back into it fully. So I think that kind of, and now I think initial, and there's a kind of difference to it as well. When you first start off where you have to do everything versus when you have, you know, 100 plus people in the company, you also have to like learn to delegate as well and make and trust people to do, they will do the right thing. So for me personally, I think to have that balance, to know that when your phone is off, that the people who are on call, they're going to look after it. I think it, it gives you a lot of, well, it gives you a lot of satisfaction, but also gives you a lot of comfort too. So because when you're back on, then you're back on 100%. So I think it's very important, at least for me, that I'm not always on. Yes. But I do take that time off. No, that's good. I think especially nowadays, it's especially important. And, you know, mental health is a topic of conversation nowadays. And, but ultimately, I mean, our brains need a break just in as much mm -hmm. as everything else. We're not robots. And so taking the time to disconnect and unplug, I think is extremely healthy. So for you to recognize that, I think is extremely important. Yeah. And it's very difficult for us to do that because we work across pretty much all the different time zones. Yeah. So to have that discipline, it didn't come easy, but it eventually came. Nice. Good for you. I applaud you for doing that. Masood, this has been an absolute pleasure. If someone's interested or a company's interested in your services or products that you're offering, what's the best way to reach out? Yeah, the best way to reach out would be, uh, you know, to directly to our office here in Houston, which is kind of stuffed by myself and 10 other people. Okay. So reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'll leave my details and the company's details below or wherever. <laughs> yes. No, I was going to say any link, I can have your either LinkedIn or email website link I already put. So that'll be in the show notes for everyone to access if they're interested. Obviously, you're on LinkedIn as well. So I encourage people to connect with you on LinkedIn. It looks like your LinkedIn page. Also, you guys create content on there as well. So you can keep up with the latest and greatest that's going on. I think it's great. And again, I really appreciate you coming on today. Do you have any closing last words or anything else that you'd like to relay to the energy world? 
No, thanks a lot for having me, Justin. Really appreciate it. And I hope I did a good job. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I do want to take a moment to tell everyone about some upcoming events before we close out. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Sorry for the interruption, folks, but I just want to share a few quick things for November. First, our industrial mixers here in Houston, November 17th. It's usually the last Thursday of each month, but because of the holidays, we're having to move stuff around. We're also launching a new live stream, OGGN Unscripted, on November 16th. We'll be at the Rockwell Automation Fair November 10th through 11th. You can come free. We'll have a live podcast there. We'll be hosting some panels. And then we'll also be at the 23rd World Petroleum Congress 5th through 9th once again with live podcast and hosting a couple of panels. For this information and everything else, just follow us on social. Check us out on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook. And if you go to LinkedIn, go ahead and join the OGGN Street Team. I'll see you again next month. Great. Thank you. Well, Masood, if there's anything OGGN can help you with, please let us know. I hope to stay in touch. And again, for all the listeners out there, always remember when the density's up and the gas is down, open the choke. Let's go to town. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again for listening. Tune in next week for another episode of Oil & Gas Onshore, a production of Oil & Gas Global Network. For more information, visit OGGN.com.